Good morning and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Emily Diada, and this morning, uh, my lovely podcast assistant, Kim. Hi, everyone. And myself have come to Newtown to the National LGBTI Health Alliance to interview the Executive Director, Rebecca Reynolds. Thank you so much for joining us, Rebecca. Thanks so much for coming <laughs> to Newtown. It's lovely here. It it's is. a pleasure. Um, so maybe you could start by giving our listeners um, a bit of an overview of what the National Health Alliance does, the kind of work you're doing. Mm. So the National LGBTI Health Alliance, Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Intersex, if people aren't aware, is the peak uh, organisation that represents uh, communities, peoples and organisations working in LGBTI health and social and emotional wellbeing. So while we sit here at our national office in Newtown, around Australia there are lots and lots of specialist organisations who are working in LGBTI health or parts of that, so maybe gay and lesbian health, maybe trans health, maybe intersex health, um, and really approaching that from um, health and human rights viewpoint where um, our work is not about uh, people accessing clinical supports or medical supports. Uh, specifically, we look at things like birth certificate reform and other you know, pieces of legislation that actually have an impact on people's health and well-being and social and emotional well-being, which makes it pretty broad. <laughs> and I guess we also then work across the lifespan. Yeah. So if you think about uh, the experiences of people who um, may identify or have a family member who identifies or is characterised under the LGBTI acronym, then that's everything from preconception through to after death mm-hmm. in terms of preconception um, around access to facility for same-sex couples, children who are born with a variation of intersex characteristics or variations, through to deciding with superannuation companies whether a partner has the right to access superannuation if a family is contesting that. So there's a real huge body of work in there. Um, that kind of touches on so many different ways of people's lives. And kind of some of the key project work we do um, here, we have a very big project in the ageing and aged care space, um, Mm -hmm. and that works with local partners around Australia to work with aged care service providers around the country so that their staff um, and policies and processes um, are flexible and appropriate for people entering the aged care sector. Is that currently an issue, so the policies aren't actually always aligned? Absolutely. Um, And I think aged care is one of those, uh, from a a person's lived experience, um, people who are entering the aged care kind of sector now, or that cohort, are people who've lived through the time when homosexuality was illegal. Mm -hmm. Um, There was no such thing as a trans person. No one had any idea around people with intersex variations and everything was very medicalised and um, criminalised. So these folk have lived through that and now they're being asked to trust a system that actually really wasn't good for them for the bulk of their life. Absolutely. So, so many barriers to overcome. But aged care in Australia has come a really long way in the last five years or so in that all legislation relating to the provision of services for LGBTI people entering aged care systems um, means that no provider can discriminate on the basis of someone's sexuality, gender or intersex variations, which is uh, not the case in any other sector in the country at the moment, that religious organisations can still apply for exemptions around service provision. The only difference 
in the ageing aged care sector is that um, religious organisations still can discriminate against employees who identify under the LGBTI umbrella oh, because that's a different piece of legislation. I so, had no idea. Yeah. That's really terrible that there's still legislation like that. Mm, but there's legislation for all of the other age groups. Um, like education and things like that, where discriminations are still discriminations, <laughs> discriminations are still occurring because exemptions are still in place. So, aging and aged care is actually a pretty good example of where we need to head in all of the other sectors. And you work yeah. across all of the different sectors. Yeah, we do. Yeah. I think our, one of our other key projects is called our Mind Out project, which is working in mental health and suicide prevention, and that's working with PHNs or primary health networks and mainstream mental health organisations so that they are equipped to work with LGBTI people where they are. And I think one of the big things we see in mental health organisations is that you know, you're there because you're a professional, you have a qualification and you, you're actually probably quite good at your job. Mm. But historically, people have had a bit of a freak out, I guess, when someone's come through to talk about their sexuality or their gender if that hasn't been a part of someone's lived experience. Yeah. And so then they've referred them to a specialist organisation who may be based 2,000 kilometres away yeah. or um, is, doesn't get a lot of funding or resources anyway. And that person is then immediately told that they're different to their community or they're different to other people in their school from the outset, like, we can't deal with you here, you need to go to a special service. Oh, so awful. just yeah. makes me want to hug them all. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so Mind Out is about working with those frontline organisations to say, you know, you've got this, you've got these skills, let us give you the specialist knowledge that you need to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, and Mind Out's actually also a pretty unique project because it has a capacity building element to it as well. Um, and so we work with a number of kind of different population groups. Um, we work with people with variations of intersex characteristics and we work with a really strong and deadly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander group who are named Tequabi Giz um, and they're folk from who are working in support kind of organisational capacity unfunded across Australia and the Torres Strait. Um, so we bring them together and we're trying to develop capacity and organisational capacity for them to better be able to work with um, their communities, uh, whether they're Aboriginal, Torres Strait or Australian South Sea Islander communities. And we're also doing work within Mind Out with specialist youth organisations. So youth organisations that are working across Australia, from everywhere from Cape York Peninsula, all the way through to Bunbury and Southwest WA nice. and everywhere in between. So that's it's a pretty exciting project. Yeah. And I think the kind of other major area of work just um, that we do, which is definitely requires the most <laughs> requires the most management, just because of what it is, is that we run QLife, which is a web and phone counselling service which operates three hundred and sixty five or six days a year. Yeah, it's a great service. Thank you. But um, and it's amazing because it's um, primarily or largely run by volunteers um, who give up their time across the country and cover shifts and are there from three pm to midnight. Uh, in each same territory, um, which is really wonderful, and it's um, about that peer lived experience that mm. someone doesn't have to explain 
how they identify or what's happening for them, that all of those volunteers are trained and know and are members of the lived experience community. So that kind of level of support is much easier, removes a whole heap of barriers to access. Yeah, being able to talk to someone who actually understands from being through it themselves. Absolutely. I was just, I wanted to touch on what it's been like over the last couple of years being the peak um, health organisation with Mm -hmm. all of the the political, I guess, I can't think of the word I'm looking for. Um, yeah, but the political climate and mm-hmm. within the lead up to the um, the vote for equal marriage. Mm-hmm. What's that been like? I think um, on a kind of personal level, just because I, f- I feel like I'm someone who has a fair bit of resilience. You don't kind of take on a role within an organisation unless you're kind of willing to shit as well (laughs) but I was just at a function a couple of weeks ago with another colleague who works in a gay and lesbian organisation and it was the first time that we'd seen each other since the postal survey stuff had happened and we were saying that we felt like it's probably only just now that we feel okay to talk about it again without like wanting to just Mm -hmm. shut down and yeah. I know definitely for the couple of weeks after the postal survey, I was like, I just don't want to talk. Like, I just don't want to talk about mm-hmm. it because it was really very intense. And we definitely saw um, an increase in people asking for our support through QLife, but also through um, our other projects and work. Um, so from people who were wanting to make a difference and to help um, and wanting to know what they could do. And that was lovely. Mm. It's actually probably a really good balance. But the intensity of that, um, when you kind of people are hearing their lives debated on a daily basis like at school or um, in a coffee shop when they're getting their morning coffee or walking past papers and it was kind of everywhere mm. um, and just in uh, such a negative way mm. like that's what was making the kind of conversations happen in the media yeah um, you know and I mean that's what media does but I think it fails to understand the impact of what happens when you see your life and your body and your relationship discussed every way and every day and that they didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't kept to being a respectful debate um, about equal marriage rights. Yeah, it certainly wasn't. No, it went off into a whole heap of areas that you know, was deeply damaging for um, young people and for families. Um, and probably deeply damaging for everyone who kind of could see themselves or someone that they loved in that discussion and I think it will take a long time to heal from and I think that probably we'll still be seeing the impacts of that for another year or so as people kind of slowly pull themselves out of it but I think things like having it backed up with the religious freedoms review that is happening at the moment which again is talking about people's right (laughs) um, to marry in particular cases or their right to their body um, or their right to live their lives in a particular gender. All of that is up for debate again in a different way and that review isn't being conducted particularly transparently. So it's a bit going from a postal survey which was asked of every single household in Australia to have their say to one that's being conducted by someone and it's kind of behind closed doors feels like you know you're going from one extreme to the other and either way you've got very little chance of seeing actually what's happening and that feels like another example of people policing your relationship or your body Mm. um, or your decision making and choices and that that's not equality 
like that's still not a quality yeah. that's not being able to equally participate in the decisions that make your life your own yeah so yeah it's kind of just a bit of an ongoing process and feels like the last couple of years and probably the next year or so will continue to be that pressure cooker yeah mm. so I think it's really important to have those strong networks and those opportunities to like connect and um, talk and work with people who uh, have the same you know, ethos and ethics and politics um, as you so you can kind of stay sane a little bit yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I've been thinking about that through the podcast interviews a completely different issue but you know when you're having stress in your work or feeling um, like you have imposter syndrome and the big thing is having those networks it's mm. I think that's one of the biggest things in life is having those people that have your back and that yeah, totally. understand where you're coming from and you can just go hey you just did a good job yeah <laughs> why thank you <laughs> well I think you're doing a really good job here I think thank it's you. really important work it is. I think it's really inspiring yeah. mm. there's an amazing team of people working not just here but across Australia doing yeah. this work so. and can I ask how you first got involved in the health were you involved in health the health sector or more in an advocate um, I've been working in the community sector for about 15 years mm-hmm. um, and mostly, mostly in, um, I guess, health service organisations or rights-based organisations. And I spent a couple of years overseas um, in Southeast Asia working on maternal and child health and HIV and AIDS transmission which was wonderful and really uh, formative for me in terms of working out where my ego sat (laughs) um, in relation to kind of fixing the world as Mm. opposed to fixing the system. Um, And then came back to work at a specialist youth organisation called 2010, which is based here um, in Sydney as well. And from there, then transitioned into this national role four and a half years ago. So I think... So, <laughs> sorry, yeah. I was just going to say, was it a steep learning curve? Or? Steep learning curve, but also mm-hmm. I think the um, good thing about working through the community sector um, and doing a heap of different roles is that it means that when you come into a role that's a national role and you kind of have things thrown at you from heaps of different directions, you're pretty used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and because when an organisation is working well, then the community and communities that they're serving are not afraid to get in touch and have a conversation, Mm. even if it's a difficult conversation. So I think that's the important thing around doing the work and doing the work well is making yourself available for criticism, but also conversation Um, and that being okay. And that um, you use that in a positive way to actually better what you're doing because then you make things better for people who are living in the communities yeah that's that's really key because not everyone's like that willing to take that feedback so mm. that's fantastic yeah. Kim do you have a question you'd like to ask so my question is that how can events like Maddy Grass mm. can help to affect mm. the movement mm. like has there been any significant changes in the event of Maddy Grass um, I think events like Mardi Gras and that's kind of the big visible one, but there's lots that happen around the country and I think also like there's Mardi Gras type events or parade events that happen in Burke and re- like really remote I didn't know that. That's the cool. As well. Absolutely. Right. So, but I think that visibility and celebration is really so very important just for the people who aren't comfortable yet in oh, yeah. identifying in a particular way or in having a particular conversation 
that visibility is reassuring mm-hmm. um, and that visibility is often something that gives someone the strength to invite someone into their life in a different way. Yeah. So those kind of events are really very, very important. But I think they also run the risk of um, making invisible some really important issues. Mm-hmm. And For I think, example. yeah, so like people with uh, variations of sex characteristics or intersex people, mm-hmm. um, they have a very different set of health and wellbeing needs to someone who is lesbian, gay or bi or trans. Mm-hmm. And that's around the uh, coerced sterilisation of infants and children mm-hmm. and the mutilation of genitalia to normalise mm-hmm. appearance for no medical reason. And these are human rights abuses mm-hmm. and these are still happening in Australia in hospitals today. Mm-hmm. And you can't put that on a Mardi Gras float. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that, do you know what I mean? So yeah, I understand. Yeah, so I think uh, we just need to be really celebrating what we can celebrate yeah. but just being very conscious of who you are then making invisible um, yeah. through that process. So it's a really big tension mm-hmm. um, to hold and I think that's why we always say LGBTI communities mm. because it's not a commu- it's not a singular yeah. community. There are so many different issues yeah. um, that we just need to make sure that people are not invisibilized in that. Mm. Okay. Can I have another follow-up? Yes, <laughs> yes you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, were you with the organization in the very first place of establishment, like getting No, yeah. um, <laughs> this organization is celebrating its 10th birthday this year. Congratulations. Oh, oh, congratulations. So um, I've been here for about four and a half years and I think it's kind of one of those things that it's now, the organization is now growing into its next kind of adolescent phase yeah. so yeah. it'll be interesting to see what yeah, happens transition. there absolutely mm-hmm. so it's established and it's funding secure for the next couple of years yeah. and we've got a big staff team here now which mm-hmm. has just happened over the last couple of years so mm-hmm. it's um but yes there's been other people um, who were here at the beginning mm-hmm. and the organization was established by a collection and collaboration of other organizations mm-hmm. who identified that there was going to be a need to have a national LGBTI health organization and voice at a federal level mm-hmm. because of that's the way the funding was going yeah. so where maybe seven or eight years ago there was a whole heap more state-based health funding that's all slowly been rolled up into federal funding and federal initiatives that want one service provider or one contract so yeah do you have any advice for the activist group in other developing countries Mm -hmm. when you know first they have other pressing priority Mm -hmm. like the basic standard of living to care for Mm -hmm. but we still have need to address the issue of discrimination Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of organization they try to set up and they try mm. to advocate mm. but there's lack of resources and mm. so what's your advice mm. Kim's from Vietnam so I think she does. <laughs> yeah. That's right. yeah that's um, what yeah there is international donor support and philanthropic organizations um, which are deeply committed to providing funding to the south the global south around LGBTI issues um, and I think that um, that's becoming more visible 
as the world kind of hears about the stuff that's happening in Indonesia and other countries for gay men and for that kind of, for the human rights kind of abuses that are happening yeah. across Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. um, that that's definitely becoming more of a priority. Really struggle <laughs> with the idea of offering advice. Yeah. Um, because I know even in Australia, um, a solution that might work in one place just mm. won't work somewhere else because there's not safety. Yeah. Um, and I think it probably goes back to what we were talking about before in terms of those networks of support oh. um, that you have other people around you as well mm-hmm. who are helping to establish and tackle and deal with things as they arise. Yeah. Um, and I know lots of countries in Southeast Asia so much further ahead than Australia in their language and mm-hmm. how do they you know, think about things like Thailand has got toys sure. in the constitution mm. yeah. um, and that in PNG and other places like six genders, five genders, six genders that they <laughs> yeah, recognise. Cool. And, um, you know, particular words like within New Zealand and other cultures for, you know, um, gay and lesbian people. And um, I think we've got so many lessons that we could learn from yeah. other countries. But I think that all of those movements have started through networks of people getting together and finding ways to stay safe within an unsafe system. So like closed Facebook groups, you know, (laughs) and like (laughs) playing pool at the pub on Saturday night and then also talking about business. I just think it's about it's like finding a revolution. Really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> just finding ways to stay safe and to keep on having the conversations and recognizing that you're not alone in that. And I think that's where, as a region, we've got so much to learn from each other and yeah. from different countries because everyone's doing it good in different ways. And there's no way that one size is going to work for everybody. Yeah. There's no way. Sure. Yeah. I have a few final questions, if that's okay, sure. if you still have time. I wanted to ask what you're most proud of to date. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's a big one. Mm. Sorry, that's kind of stumped me. I'm, I'm, proud, of so, I'm proud of so much. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good stumping there. <laughs> I'm proud of so much. You can have a few. Thanks. <laughs> I'm immensely proud of the QLife phone and web counselling project because that is a collaboration project between the Alliance and four partners and those four organisations came together in vastly different circumstances. Um, So everything from one organisation not having any any funding and kind of running on chook raffles and fundraisers through other organisations running a variety of programs and in working together those organisations over the last four years have all built their capacity in amazing ways and have all grown as organisations and QLife is an amazing service that's doing a lot of good. So I feel really proud that the Alliance is a part of something that's actually making such a big change in our communities. Yeah, yeah. you should be proud of them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a number of achieve, like achievements that I've seen happen at the Alliance um, like last year a group of 23 intersex advocates and activists came together and created what is called the Darlington Statement mm-hmm. and it's the first statement of its kind in Australia around how to achieve and address health and human rights issues for people with variations of intersex characteristics in their families 
and that's an amazing document. Okay, maybe we could put um, the link to that with oh, the that podcast um, on the website. That would be super. <laughs> sure. Thanks. And then I'm immensely proud of um, being able to help build the capacity of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island, Australian South Sea Island individuals and community organisations because I think as a white nation, I feel deeply regretful of the stuff that I've missed out on as a white person in terms of the culture and family and responsibility and the way that those communities look after each other mm-hmm. and I think it's such a shame like I feel such shame that that's missed out and it would be wonderful to embed that for the future we'd be a far richer country I agree to have that so there's some of the things that make me smile <laughs> that make me feel proud I think that's a great list mm, thanks. and before our final question is is there any sort of big messages that you'd find like that I've missed that you'd like to get out to the world not at all no? I think um if you're passionate about what you do you just need to make sure that the passion is always tempered with transparency and that then when you're working in like what is a sometimes really uh, hard environment or that there's arguments or people have different values, um, that as long as you can demonstrate how you've made decisions that people can disagree with the end outcome but Mm -hmm. the process needs to be clear every time. Mm -hmm. So that would be the only thing that I would say. Okay, that's a good one. Mm. And our final question that we usually end with is, is there a particular book or movie that you love or has really inspired you? No, not that I want to include in a public health podcast. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Come back and talk to me about sci-fi. Okay. (laughs) Uh, No problem at all. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks. And thank you, Kim, for helping. Thank you. Nice to meet you. What a great interview. (laughs) And we'll talk to you next time on Stories in Public Health.